Hello, Moonwalkers, and welcome to another episode of Moonwalk Talks. Watch. Welcome to Moonwalk Talks, a Michael Jackson podcast that's dedicated to searching out the facts, stories, and theories about the king of pop. My name is Jenkins, and I am your host. Please follow at Moonwalk Talks on Twitter and Instagram, and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Moonwalk Talks on iTunes. And a special hello to all you lovely moonwalkers watching on YouTube. Please give that like button a click. And as the YouTubers like to say, smash that subscribe button. No, no really, go, go do it. I'll, I'll give you a moment. why it's so important for you to rate review and subscribe is because the higher the rating moonwalk talks gets the more people we can reach the more subscribers the more popular the show becomes the more popular the show becomes the more time i can put into it and the more time i can put into it the more people get to learn about the greatest entertainer of all time michael jackson and it only takes a few seconds of your day so thank you for rating reviewing and subscribing. Now that's all out of the way, let's talk some Moonwalk. So when we left off, an Australian billionaire by the name of Robert Holmes Accord had acquired the now infamous ATV catalog. Well, Technically, Holmes Accord acquired the ACC, or Associated Communications Corporation, which the ATV Music Catalog was just a part of. There were dozens of other programs and properties included in the ACC purchase as well, including popular shows like General Hospital and one of my personal favorites, The Muppet Show. He decided to hold on to most of the ACC, but Holmes Accord had no want or need for some of the additional assets in the ACC, so he began to sell and auction them off, including the ATV catalog. At this point, a young lawyer by the name of John Brinka caught word of this. He had been working for Michael Jackson for a couple of years now, helping him search for and purchase various music catalogs. He had also got in Michael's good graces by helping him find the finances for the music video that changed the direction of the entertainer's entire career. Thriller. John Branca has been a topic of controversy in Michael Jackson's life as to the legitimacy of some of his claims, especially when it comes to Michael Jackson's will. But that is a whole story onto itself, and I am not looking forward to writing that episode. Although... I will say in his defense that Michael Jackson's career might not have been as fruitful if it wasn't for the diligent work that John Brink has put forth. That obviously could be up for debate, but do your research and your opinion of him might sway. But beyond that, it clearly shows in the story of the ATV catalog. After hearing of the ATV catalog, John Branca brings it to Michael Jackson's attention, and here... The story differs depending on who is telling it. So, the best way I came up with in order to make the story fair and give it the best account of the events that transpired is to take the similarities from the multiple sources I have researched and compile them into a cohesive narrative. The sources include Robert Terraborelli's The Magic, The Madness, The Whole Story, Randall Sullivan's Untouchable, 
Zach O'Malley Greenberg's Michael Jackson, Inc., The Trials of Michael Jackson by Linton Guest, Robert Hilburn's 1985 Los Angeles Times article, as well as numerous online articles, reports, essays, and documented interviews from Holmes Accord, his aides, John Branca, Paul McCartney, Yoko Ono, and of course, Michael Jackson himself. All right, I know what you all are thinking, and I get it. Everybody has their various opinions about certain Michael Jackson books. And yes, I understand that everybody has an angle when it comes to telling these kind of stories. And most of the time, the angle is money. Everybody is still trying to make a dime off Michael Jackson's name. But it's not like these people just make these stories up. They research these topics immensely. They interview people, they knock on doors, they spend years trying to find these answers. So to me, they aren't the enemy. They take what they have learned and present it without bias or judgment. More like a textbook. The people I have a hard time trusting are the people that were around Michael Jackson at the time, because their angle is different. Some of them want to save face. They want to look like they were in the right. Sometimes they play the savior, other times they play the victim. And they will throw anybody under the bus, including their former friend and employer, Michael Jackson, just to make themselves look better or to push the agenda they want to convey. And that is something I don't understand. Sure, you want to write a book about Michael Jackson for money? Fine, I get that, you want money. You don't know Michael. You have no bias towards or against him. You're just telling the story from the facts you have gathered. But people like John Branca, Frank DeLeo, the Cassios, or various members of the Jackson family, they all have the ability to warp the story to their fitting. And the story will stick as there's nobody left to contest it. And this is why I use multiple different sources when I write these episodes. The more the sources, the easier to figure out the truths from the fabrications. So let's get to it. The bidding for the ATV catalog. Now, in my opinion, the amount of buyers, lawyers, and representatives' names that are thrown about in this little tale can be quite distracting, so I'm going to separate them into different, more manageable groups. There are also a lot of little details that I'm going to leave out, because this podcast also has to be entertaining, and I don't think most of you care to hear about verifying legalities and financial reports. Trust me, this will make it much more fun and easier to follow. Here we go. Showdown. In 1984, Holmes Court was ready to sell the ATV catalog. There were a few different people that were interested in the purchase, but the top four in the running were Charles Kopelman and Marty Bendir, who were acting under the entertainment company financed by MCA, Richard Branson, owner of Virgin Records, the record company CBS, and of course, Michael Jackson and John Branca. Okay, just remember, four major bidders, MCA, Virgin, CBS, and Jackson. The first couple of months were a flurry of bids for the catalog, each team assessing what the catalog was worth, how much they felt it was worth, and offering what they felt they should spend on it. Michael Jackson was busy on the victory tour at this time, so he would have weekly phone chats with Branca on the status of the purchase. Branca had warned Michael that this was going to be a difficult purchase, but Michael was dead set on getting those songs. So anytime he would talk with Branca, he would tell him, get me that catalog, no matter what it takes. So in order to weed out some of the competition, he talks with CBS. For those that don't know, CBS was Michael Jackson's label at the time. So Brink informed CBS that Michael is in fact bidding for the ATV catalog, and it might not be in the best interest of CBS to displease the biggest, most profitable star on their label. So they pulled out of the bidding war. One down, two to go. So next was Virgin Records. And as it turns out, Branca was actually doing some consulting work for Virgin Records. So, when asked by company owner Richard Branson if buying the ATV catalog was a good move, 
Branca chose to stay in Michael Jackson's favor and flat out lied to Branson, saying no, it wasn't a good move, informing him that if he bought the Beatles' music, he would most likely face legal problems with Yoko Ono and Paul McCartney. And being that Branca was his consultant, Bronson took his advice and backed out. Pretty shady on Branca's part, but two down. And on to the last men standing, Marty Bandier and Charles Culpeman of MCA. At this point, Branca and Holmes Court were in a power struggle playing off each other about the purchase of the catalog. Sometimes Holmes Court would say he wants more money, other times he would say the catalog was Jackson's. During this time, Marty Bendier with MZA comes to Holmes Court with a $50 million offer. That's $3 million more than Michael Jackson's $47 million offer. Holmes Court was ready to get this mess over with and just sell to MCA, so Bendier and Kobelman hop a flight to the UK to meet with Holmes Court and seal the deal. But in one of the shrewdest business moves of all time, John Branca learns where Bandir and Copeman are getting their funding from and calls the head of MCA, Irving Azoff, who just happened to be a consultant on the Jackson's victory tour that Michael was currently on. And he convinced him to pull the funding. Jackson is the last man standing. Holmes Court was back to square one with nobody to buy the catalog, except Michael Jackson. So in a last-ditch effort to unload the catalog, Holmes Court called Branca, and after a bit of playing hard to get negotiating, within 24 hours, Michael Jackson bought the Northern Songs and ATV catalog for $47.5 million. Along with this deal, Holmes Court would create a scholarship in Jackson's name, and Michael agreed to make a charity appearance in Perth, Australia, as well as let Holmes Court keep the rights to the Beatles song Penny Lane as a gift for his daughter of the same name. When the King of Pop, Michael Jackson, came to Perth as special guest for Telethon 1985, he had little to say. It was wonderful. It was a wonderful experience to see all the children. I loved it. Very polite, extremely polite. I mean, as you know, he's never really spoken much on air at all. It'd uh, it, be a th thank you and yes, I'm okay, and that's about it. Janet Holmes Accord remembers the deal her husband made. Robert Holmes Accord would sell the superstar a rare musical catalogue, including a Beatles collection. In return, Michael Jackson would fly to Perth for telethon. Robert sold him the uh, the music catalogue that was in uh, the, the company which we, we bought in, in, U in the UK. Uh, it owned the Beatles music. It was a tough deal negotiated by Holmes Court's right-hand man, Bert Reuter. So Michael Jackson's people uh, approached us and we negotiated with him, but the writing and breakpoint condition was that he had to come to telephone. We're terrifically pleased that you came, Michael. Thank you very much for coming. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, our special guest for Telethon 1985, Michael Jackson. Now, you may be asking yourself, well, where was Paul McCartney and Yoko Ono in all of this? Well, this is where it gets interesting. After hearing of Michael's purchase of the catalog, Paul was not too happy about Weeks it. Weeks later, just somebody rang me up and said, Michael Jackson's bought Northern Songs. It's your whole portfolio. Oh, yeah, and that's, that's where all the Beatles songs are in. But you know... Um, but it's not funny in a way to you, is it? Well, no, it's not funny at all. But the thing is, there's nothing I can do about it. The, the fact that isn't funny was the fact that when we were 20, John and I, it was a kind of pretty ordinary publishing deal at the time. But they took the copyrights. So, you know, he bought that company, which was up for sales. There's nothing wrong with that. But I do intend to have a word with him. I spoke to him in L.A., actually. You did? Yeah, and said, look, we've got to come to a good understanding here. Because there are a number of things I don't like about how he runs the company. I mean, isn't this weird? Paul would like you to believe that Michael Jackson was in the wrong for buying the catalog, or quote, buying the rug from underneath him. He would do interviews and say how he feels betrayed by Michael Jackson, or how Michael Jackson's use of the songs were disrespectful. But here is the truth. 
Holmes Accord actually approached both Paul McCartney and Yoko Ono before ever putting the catalog up for sale. I was offered the songs to buy um, for 20 million pounds. Uh, Paul had many different opportunities to purchase the catalog and turned them all down saying they were too pricey. At one point before Holmes Accord even had the catalog, he had been approached to buy ATV for only 30 million, a fraction of what Michael Jackson paid, but he turned it down. And it's not that he couldn't afford it, he was and still is one of the most wealthy musicians of all time. Back then he was worth over $400 million and made over $40 million a year in royalties alone. He could have easily put forth the money to buy his songs back, but he kept turning them down. And he did this for two reasons. One of the reasons is because he didn't want to seem greedy to the public by buying out John Lennon's portion of the catalog. He had reached out to Yoko, who receives John's percentage of the royalties, about teaming up to purchase the catalog, but she wanted nothing to do with it. So in his eyes, unless John Lennon was co-owner of the songs they co-wrote together, he wouldn't buy. And the problem for me was I didn't want to be Paul McCartney owning John Lennon's bit of the songs. I felt that would be like unfair. I wanted to own my bit of the songs, but I wanted John or his estate as it then was to own his side of it. You know, I thought it would be perceived as a bit kind of grabby of me if I just moved in. Yeah, I got all the songs. I, I wasn't comfortable with that. So what happened was I rang up Yoko and I said, we have an opportunity to buy these songs. 10 million to you, 10 million to me, and we'll, we'll have it here. And she actually said, I think we can get it for five. And two, because he just couldn't bring himself to pay for his own songs. All right, now think about it like this. You paint a picture. Aside from painting canvas, you spent nothing on that idea. Nothing. The idea was free, and you gave it to the world. Now, say somebody stole your painting, and an art gallery somehow acquires it, and it becomes the most valuable painting in the world. One art gallery sells it to another for thousands, and then another person buys it and sells it for millions. Everybody is making money from your idea, your painting, except you. Would you want to spend millions of dollars to buy your painting back? Or would you just paint another one? And this is how I assume Paul felt. These are his songs, his ideas, his thoughts and sounds. It cost him nothing to come up with these songs. So why should he have to pay for them? Now, if it were me and I was in his position, and I had 400 million in the bank, I would spend a little 30 million and buy my songs back. But that's just me. But I can understand where he's coming from. And his heart was in the right place. But what I refuse to let slide is the way he tried to make Michael Jackson out to be the bad guy in this scenario. Paul liked to go around and say that Michael Jackson stabbed him in the back or outbid him for the catalog. He'd play the victim. Or how he said that Michael pulled the rug from underneath him. All of that is bullshit. <laughs> Paul had refused to buy the catalog on multiple occasions, and instead of the catalog being thrown into the pocket of another money-hungry music label like MCA or Virgin, it landed softly into the lap of a man who actually cares about the songs. And John Lennon's widow, Yoko Ono, agreed, stating that she felt the catalog would, quote, be in great hands if bought by Jackson. She went on to praise him in 1990, stating, Businessmen who aren't artists themselves wouldn't have the consideration Michael has. He loves the songs. He's very caring. There could be a lot of arguments and stalemates if Paul and I owned it together. Neither Paul nor I needed that. If Paul got the songs, people would have said, Paul finally got John. And if I got them, they'd say, oh, the dragon lady strikes again. So everybody should get off with this Michael stabbed Paul in the back BS because the fault lies with Paul McCartney. He made multiple bad decisions, signed away his music, and lost his catalog. His defense is that he was young when he signed away his rights, but in reality, he was only three years younger than Michael Jackson when he signed them away. 
So Paul in his early 20s made a bad deal, and Michael in his early 20s made one of the smartest moves in music history. You can't blame age. Maybe experience, but not age. Not only that, but Michael's people actually reached out to Paul's people to see if he was going to bid. No. Paul turned down multiple offers to buy them back for a fraction of his earnings. In the end, Michael Jackson was not in the wrong for buying a catalog that was simply up for sale. Michael Jackson saw an opportunity and did what was ever necessary to make it happen. Even more than that, without getting too much into the boring numbers game of it all, he only had to put up $11 million of his actual money for the purchase. The rest was paid from selling off unneeded assets in the catalog and other resourceful monetary maneuvers within his finances. So in August of 1985, Michael Jackson was the sole owner of the ATV catalog. It was also around this time that he formed a separate catalog of his own music, naming it the My Jack Music Catalog. Now, owning Northern Songs gave him full rights to distribute the Beatles songs however he pleased. Unfortunately, this did not please Paul McCartney. You know, some of his things he does must be seen like a strange. Um, I suppose, you know, it's strange for a fella to have so much plastic surgery. It used to just be the sort of Hollywood ladies or the, um, the Hampstead ladies, whoever it was, you know, who had all that done. And it's maybe strange to see a young guy like that having it done, you know. Um, and sort of going white is a strange thing too, you know, sort of from, from being black, you know, mm -hmm. trying to get white. So, but I mean, you know, look, if he wants to do it, if that's how he wants to look. But Michael Jackson has the rights now mm. to all the Beatles stuff. How much did it bother you when uh, Revolution was used to sell Nike sneakers and things like that? Heaps. Uh, yeah, you know, it was. Uh, I'll tell you why, you see. With the Beatles, we had all those offers. We had the offers from the big soft drinks companies. You know who I'm talking about. Big, huge offers to use a Beatles song, to use this and that. But we always turned them down because we believed it would devalue the whole thing. We'd be seen to be selling out, which we were keen not to do. You know, we kind of felt that our fans believed in us and that we owed them some sort of integrity. We, we, we talked to them. We knew what they thought of us, you know. Here's something I just saw on last week's Rolling Stone with uh, Jerry Garcia on the cover. It's obviously John's glasses. Woke up, got out of bed, dragged a comb across my head, found my way downstairs and drank a cup. John Lennon, Paul McCartney, Maxwell House Coffee. Oh boy, don't you love it? Well, never mind, love. <laughs> it's not the first time and it probably won't be the last, but uh, there you go. That's what I mean. Cheap and nasty, I reckon. Actually, at this time, a lot of the Beatles fans felt like this. Paul's argument was that Michael Jackson was mistreating the songs in the catalog. He felt certain songs shouldn't be used to promote brand names, which is completely understandable from his point of view. I'm sure as Michael Jackson fans, we all have a song special to us, and we wouldn't want that song to be exploited for a product. Or better put, I bet most of us wouldn't want certain artists covering our favorite songs. But Michael didn't see the usage of the songs as cheap or disrespectful. He felt that a whole new generation of kids needed to hear these songs. These songs were special to him. There was no internet, and kids weren't rushing to listen to the oldie stations back then. So to him, licensing them in commercials and movies was one of the best ways to get them into the ears of children. And I'm sure the publishing paycheck wasn't a bad incentive either. But that's not to say he didn't feel some of these songs were sacred. He did. You have to remember that he bought this catalog because these were some of his favorite songs. In fact, he had a list of songs that he felt should never be used in commercials. Unfortunately, his list didn't match up with Paul's. So songs like Revolution were used for Nike ads. A Day in the Life lyrics were used in a print ad for Maxwell House Coffee. And the kicker for Paul was when All You Need Is Love was used for a Panasonic commercial. But, um, and what happened actually is then I started to ring him up. Because I thought, okay, here's the guy historically placed to give Lennon McCartney a good deal at last. Because mm -hmm. we'd got signed when we were 21 or something in a back alley in Liverpool. And the deal had remained the same. Even though we'd made this company the most 
famous, hugely successful. So I kept thinking, it was time for a raise. <laughs> you know. uh, well, you would, you know. Yes, I think so. And um, so it was great. But I did talk to him about it. But he, he kind of blanked me on it. He kept saying, that's just business, Paul, you know. So I went, yeah, it is, mm -hmm. and waited for a reply. But we never kind of got to it. And I thought, mm, so we kind of drifted apart. Yeah. It was no big bust-up. Yeah. We kind of drifted apart after that. Okay. But he was a lovely man, massively talented, and we miss him. We'll be uh, right back here. Uh, oh, wait, wait he had called Michael with his complaints and even attempted to sue a couple of times, but Michael brushed him off, explaining, quote, it's just business, Paul. And in one more power move near the end of this battle between the two, Michael Jackson records and shoots a cover of his favorite Beatles song for his 1988 movie Moonwalker. And who makes an appearance in the film? Other than John Lennon's son, Sean Lennon. That song was Come Together. end of the saga between Paul and Michael. They would never work together again. They were never friends, nor were they enemies. They would have their spats. They would see each other in public and be cordial. And as bitter as Paul was towards Michael, in the end, he always had nice words to say about Well, that's the end of Michael and Paul's story, but the saga of the ATV catalog continues. But we need to skip forward a bit, about uh, 10 years. Give me just a second, let me find this real quick. All right, there, oh, there it is. All right, a lot can happen in 10 years, so let's fast forward through time. 1987, Michael records his album, Bad releases it in August the same year, Sony, a Japanese technology company, wanting to branch out into new ventures, buys at Michael Jackson's label, CBS Records, changing the name to Sony Music Company. 1991, Michael Jackson renews his record deal with Sony for a record-breaking $65 million and released his eighth album, Dangerous. 1995, Michael Jackson raises his whoa, 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 this is, uh, this is where we need to be, uh, 1995, yes. And just a little fun fact, all those sound effects are from the sound effect library that Michael purchased as part of the ATV catalog. In 1995, Sony approaches Michael Jackson to merge their collective catalogs, buying into a 50% stake of ATV for $90 million. That is double the money Michael Jackson originally paid for his half of the catalog. So he essentially bought the catalog for nothing and made a $43 million profit. Not only that, but he would now receive royalties from all of Sony's licensed songs. And that included artists like Mariah Carey and Bob Dylan. On top of it all, the merger didn't include his own songs. So he maintained complete control of all his own compositions. This merger would make Sony ATV the third largest music catalog in the entire world. Now, some have wondered why Michael Jackson would merge his lucrative ATV catalog with Sony. Some would claim it was a smart business move on Michael's end. Some would say it was the first step to Sony getting the ATV catalog from Michael. And others would say it's because Michael Jackson's finances were out of control and he needed the money. Well, actually, all of these statements have some truth behind them. One, yes, it was a very smart investment on Michael's part. He doubled his initial investment and was now co-owner of a company that was worth over $600 million at that time and would end up growing to over $2 billion. Two, yes, Sony 
is a business and it is a business's business to take over other businesses. So to think they didn't want to own the ATV catalog for themselves would be foolish. And three, Michael was in fact running low on funds at the time. He wasn't broke by any means, but with the cost of running Neverland, his outlandish spending, his albums not performing as well as he thought they would, the backlash and $20 million settlement from the false allegations, his finances were starting to take a significant dip. So all of these things combined led to the merger of Sony and Michael Jackson's ATV. In retrospect, a lot of people would think this was the first move to sealing his doom. But you have to remember that Michael had a good relationship with Sony at the time. Why would he not want to join forces with his trusted label? As the Sony ATV catalog continued to grow, Michael Jackson's finances continued to plummet. In the early 2000s, he began to take loans from banks to cover his outrageous spending. People wonder how a person like Michael Jackson could be in such financial ruin. And it's complicated if you get into the boring details, but simply put, he was spending more money than he was making. At one point, he was making about 25 million a year, but spending around 45 million a year. On top of that, he wasn't working. It had been almost six years since he had put out an album, went on tour, did anything that would bring in a big payday. Also, Michael Jackson just wasn't as in demand as he was in the 80s and early 90s. The allegations really took a toll on his brand, so he needed money, and he started getting loans and using his stake in Sony ATV as collateral. 200 million here, 70 million there, and he wasn't doing anything to recoup the fees. Rumors started to circulate that Michael Jackson would be selling his share of the catalog. But he quickly killed those rumors by telling the BBC News, the Beatles catalog is not for sale, has not been for sale, and will never be for sale. Michael Jackson was proud of his accomplishment. He never forgot that he made one of the smartest business decisions of all time. So even though he knew that all of his financial troubles would go away if he sold his share, he refused. He would rather go bankrupt than ever sell his prized catalog. So, let's get to the bottom of this using the facts and only the facts. Sony versus Michael Jackson. After a long history of good business with each other, what would make the relationship between the two go sour? Let's go over a couple of the most popular reasons, one of them being agreement. Being a 50% owner meant that both sides had to agree on everything. So if Sony wanted to use a certain song for a TV ad and Michael felt it was inappropriate use of the material, he could say no, and that was that. They couldn't use it, and vice versa. Both sides had the power to veto, and the difference between Michael Jackson and Sony is that Michael Jackson actually cared about the music he owned. He knew the power of a song. Sony only sees money. So you can see how this could have upset Sony on many different occasions and how they would much rather just own the music themselves. The next is a big one on the list. Let's talk race. Oh yeah, feel the tension as soon as the topic of race comes up. Myself, being a racial mix of both black and white, life has been interesting seeing both sides of the fence. But lots of people like to bring up the race card when it comes to Sony and Michael Jackson. People like to claim that Sony were just racist and didn't like the fact that a black man, Michael Jackson, had so much power in the music industry. Let me say this as bold as I can. I in no way believe these moves to take control of the catalog were motivated by race. And Michael, using race to attack Sony, was misguided and careless. I'm not saying that black musicians haven't got the shit end of the stick. They have. Since the beginning of music, white artists and white people in power have stolen from and mistreated black artists. From stealing their sound, look, moves, words, acts like Elvis Presley and the Beatles have even gone as far to steal entire songs from black artists and call them their own. 
And this trend continues even today with acts like Iggy Azalea and Robin Thicke. Not only have they stole their music, but they also steal their money by locking black musicians in bad record deals or completely stripping them of all their royalties. This is one of the reasons Michael Jackson's original label Motown was created to begin with, fair treatment for black artists. Michael Jackson has also been submitted to his own fair share of discrimination as a black artist. This is apparent in the story of Billie Jean music video when MTV wouldn't play it because he was a black artist. Crazy to think that only 30 years ago, there was still a black artist chart and a white artist chart. To put this all in perspective, let's talk about Little Richard. Little Richard and Tootie Fruity. Little Richard is the architect for rock and roll. He created a sound and look like none had seen before. And you can see his influence everywhere. Look at any popular artist from past decades and you will see his influence. also goes for artists today such as Bruno Mars. And as influential as Little Richard was, he will still be a tiny footnote when compared to people like Elvis, The Beatles, Prince, and Michael Jackson. Let's also talk about the Robin Hood fairy tale of how Michael Jackson purchased the ATV catalog to give black musicians the rights back. Specifically, Little Richard. This never happened. Michael Jackson never gave any of the black musicians, singers, and artists that he owned the rights back to their music. Here is an interview with Brian Monroe speaking about Michael Jackson and Little Richard before his memorial. Surprisingly, Little Richard is going to be part of it. Yeah, just uh, we found out we actually talked to Little Richard yesterday. He will be at the the private memorial this morning and then here at the public one. I don't know if he's performing or not, but he'll be in attendance. And the connection there is is really fascinating because uh, we found out that um, back in 1985 when Michael Jackson, remember he outbid Paul McCartney for the ATV catalog that had all the 251 Beatles songs and Elvis Presley. 
Presley songs and a whole bunch of other collection. Buried deep inside that collection was Little Richard's song. Hmm. Golly Miss Molly, Tutti Fruity, the catalog, the rights to all the songs. And Little Richard has, has long been talking about how he never really got the credit deserved uh, from a lot of those original hits. So after he bought that, in fact, Michael and his lawyer now, who's the, the executive of the will, um, John Branca, went to Little Richard and sat down with him and said, Little Richard, you've been so important in our lives, uh, so important to music, we would like to give you your catalog back. And at the time, it was, it was easily worth four to five million dollars of annual income every year coming through him. And Little Richard was so touched by that. He told us yesterday that um, it, it, mat it meant so much to him. Um, ultimately, they couldn't work out the deal, but he said it was not Michael's fault. It was working with the Sony side and some other pieces. But the, the gesture showed the humanitarian side of, of Michael Jackson that you know a lot of people may not, may not know. So as he says, Jackson and Branca approached Little Richard to talk about giving him his rights back but ultimately they could not work out the deal. And this is from an interview with Little Richard the day before Michael Jackson's memorial. So let's just work out a timeline here. Michael and Branca approached Little Richard. So this had to have been in the mid 1980s after the purchase of the ATV, but before Branca was let go by Michael in the late 90s. But he also said that it wasn't Michael's fault that the deal didn't go through. He said it had something to do with Sony. Well, Sony wasn't even in the picture until 1995. So from Little Richard's own words, Michael wanted to give the rights back, but Sony wouldn't let him. How? How? How would Sony have anything to do with this? The only way that Sony could have said no and still have Branca in the picture is that this was talked about in the late 1990s. So really, Michael Jackson collected millions of dollars off Little Richard's songs and royalties for over a decade before even considering to give the rights back, and then ultimately didn't. This was even stated by Katherine Jackson and her lawyer in a 2009 interview with USA Today. Michael did compensate Little Richard by upping his royalty rate, but never returned his music rights back to him. There is absolutely no evidence or accounts of Michael giving any black artist their rights back. And this is why I say him playing the race card is careless, because he profited heavily off the backs of black artists as well. And to make matters worse, he was one of the very few black artists that had broken the race barrier. He wasn't seen as just a black artist. He was Michael Jackson. That name didn't carry the weight of race prosecution. The African-American community agreed with this as very few backed him during his tirade against Sony Music. They felt that Michael was happy being a crossover artist embraced by white people and white companies as long as he was selling records. But the moment the sales stop, he wants to claim it's because of his African-American race. How is it that all of a sudden Sony is racist for Invincible, but not racist during Dangerous or History? Michael Jackson had the highest royalty rate than any artist ever, including any white artist, and this was agreed to by Sony. It's not a black thing. Barry Gordy had these same thoughts when he called Michael around that time and talked to him about his disappointment in Michael for playing the race card. He knows for a fact that Michael never felt that way. Furthermore, the president of Sony was married to a black woman for Yeezus' sake. And if getting rid of black men in power was the motivation, then why haven't people like Sean Carter, Sean Combs, or Andre Young been murdered for being rich and powerful in the music business? They are all millionaires and billionaires in their own right. Don't get me wrong, I'm sure there are racists at the top, but in reality, a good businessman only sees green. Racism was a problem for black musicians, but that wasn't the case in the deal with Sony and Michael Jackson. And lastly, let's get into conspiracy territory. And uh, there, there were a lot of, there's a lot of conspiracy going on. I'll say that much. A lot of it. Do you think all around me? Is the conspiracy connected to the celebrity? Or to the trial, or to the catalog. What do you think the source of it is? I, I can't. I can't comment, Jesse. I, I don't want to. Because it. it uh, I'm under gag order, and it's a very, very serious thing. I don't want to say. 
say the wrong thing, with the wrong flavor. It's a very delicate area. It's a very delicate where we are now. Near the end of his life, Michael Jackson started to become more and more paranoid about the people around him. Some would say it was drugs, some would say it's the people. But in reality, Michael Jackson had a lifetime of dealing with lawyers and managers, crooks and thieves, false friends, fake family, and false accusers. And it was starting to take its toll on him. He had been dealing with these types for 40 years. Who could blame him for being paranoid and thinking that everybody was out to get him? Because in his eyes, they were. Everybody wanted a piece of Michael Jackson. He would tell people that he felt Sony would kill him to get that catalog. And even being as paranoid as he was, and even knowing that he might be murdered for the catalog, he was too proud of the catalog to let it go. It was his catalog. But in reality, there's no proof here. No facts, no evidence, nothing. So until there is proper evidence, nobody can say that Sony killed Michael Jackson with any merit. In truth, there are no conspiracies here. Sony didn't kill Michael Jackson. Conrad Murray did. Conrad was pressured by Michael to use a dangerous drug to sleep, and Conrad f***ed it up. Michael Jackson was a victim of Conrad's medical malpractice. Nothing more. And even more than that, the Arvizos had nothing to do with Sony either. They were just a family full of scam artists that saw Michael Jackson as an easy target. So if you look at the rational facts, Sony were just trying to keep their boat afloat. Michael Jackson was a liability that was starting to sink their ship. What you have here is a 50% owner of a company that is racking up debt, making poor financial decisions, and ultimately steering a $2 billion ship into an iceberg. He was so much in debt that even 50 This Is It shows at the O2 Arena wouldn't have helped him clear it all. And he kept borrowing money. He was spending double of what he was making. If we are being honest with ourselves, Sony knew they were going to get that catalog whether Michael Jackson was alive or dead. Either by Michael defaulting on his loans, going bankrupt due to overspending, or by reluctantly selling the remaining stakes back to Sony to keep his head above water. It was inevitable. And as hard of a pill as it is to swallow, it's the truth. Nobody wants to say it, but as the result of many poor financial decisions, control issues, surrounding himself with the wrong team of people, and not taking caution in his personal acquaintances, the only person to blame for losing the ATV catalog is Michael Jackson himself. In 2016, the estate was forced to sell Michael Jackson's stake in the ATV catalog to Sony. They settled for a sum of $750 million, 500 of it going to cover the debts and loans that Michael had amassed while in possession of the catalog. The remaining $250 million going to the estate and its benefactors. How could the estate be forced to sell the catalog? Well, in 2006, after Michael Jackson was acquitted and ultimately found not guilty, the legal fees from the trial, among many other things, had depleted his funds. So Sony agreed to help Michael by covering a large portion of his debts if he agreed to add a clause in their Sony ATV contract that would allow either party to buy out the other stake after a certain amount of time. And in 2016, they triggered the clause. The Michael Jackson estate would have needed over a billion dollars or more to even consider buying out Sony's stake. They just didn't have it and had no way to raise the funds and even if they would have bought out Sony's stake, they wouldn't have had the manpower or the additional funds to run the company. What's even crazier is that Martin Bandier, one of the bidders that lost the catalog to Michael Jackson in the 80s, is now the CEO of Sony Entertainment. So it looks like he got the catalog in the end. So the estate were forced to take a settlement less than half of what the catalog is worth. This angered a lot of the fan community as well as some of the Jackson family. 
And the reason why people care so much about this sale is because in the end, it's not what Michael Jackson would have wanted. Michael Jackson was all about being the greatest. He was about being bigger and better than anyone or anything after him. And he applied this way of thinking to every aspect of his life. And buying the ATV catalog is a testament to that, as it is one of the greatest investments ever made, not just in music history, but it is one of the greatest business investments ever completed in history, period. He held onto that catalog through thick and thin, and a lot of his legacy is held within that purchase. As my friend Q said over on the MJ cast, we are Michael Jackson fans. We are not fans of a lawyer. We are not fans of a manager or an estate. We are Michael Jackson fans. And facts aside, we have Michael Jackson's own words. He did not want to sell that catalog to Sony. It was his catalog. And that's why the fans felt so hurt and betrayed by the estate's decision. Was it a good move for the estate? If you look at the facts, yes. The catalog had become a liability to the estate due to many reasons including subpar releases, fake vocal scandals, and underperforming products, the estate still hadn't recouped all of Michael Jackson's debt. The estate is definitely making more money than they were when Michael was alive, and they have done a better job than any posthumous estate, including Elvis Presley. But you have to remember that the Sony ATV catalog also takes money to maintain. Those fees coupled with the interest from and the loan payments meant that they may never get Michael Jackson out of debt. This was the best move for the estate to finally destroy Michael's debt completely, unhinge him from the Sony burden, and concentrate solely on Michael Jackson, his music, and his legacy. But in the end, it's not what Michael Jackson would have wanted. Let's try to look at the positive side of this. Michael Jackson never saw the catalog leave his possession. Michael Jackson died as the owner of the ATV catalog. And that's the finale to our two-part episode of The Catalog is Mine. I want to thank you all so much for listening to another episode of Moonwalk Talks. I appreciate you spending your time with me. As always, I'm your host, Jenkins. Please go rate and subscribe to Moonwalk Talks on iTunes. And please don't forget to follow at Moonwalk Talks on Twitter and Instagram. If you are listening and watching on YouTube, please click that subscribe button and give us a thumbs up. And if you have any questions, comments, or have a suggestion for a show topic, please send me an email to Jenkins at Jenkins.net. And if you are enjoying the show, please go tell a friend or two about it. But yes, thanks again for giving me your time. And remember, no matter what happens today or tomorrow, keep your head up, keep the faith, and don't forget to smile.